You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where I'm going to have to start taking listener suggestions for songs, so I don't run into another Avril Lavigne situation. And welcome to episode number 102 of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. As always, this is an internet radio show hosted by the Two True Freaks Network, dealing with the subject of Green Lantern, specifically Green Lantern comics, being published between June 1990 and ending in November 2004. And I, your host, Sean Ingle, am here to talk about those comics. Specifically this time out, Green Lantern number 102, which is a part of the Emerald Knight storyline where Green Lantern Hal Jordan, not the one who turned into Parallax, a young Hal Jordan, comes back in time and, well, meets with his old Green Lantern pals, which I guess he hasn't even made yet. So it's a little bit of awkwardness with him meeting Jon Stewart and Guy Gardner, yay, Guy Gardner's in the book, and also coming back to meet with his friends, Tom Parface, Cal Macu, and, well... Not really love of his life at the time, but love of his life at the uh, time of his death, I guess, Carol Ferris. There's some awkwardness going on, and Calabac is there. For no reason whatsoever. Maybe just to throw some people around. But we also have a second book this time out, and this time out we're checking out the crossover between Green Lantern and Green Lantern, the other Green Lantern, Alan Scott, who's taken on the name of Sentinel in the story Green Lantern Sentinel Heart of Darkness. If you remember a few issues ago, issue 96, in fact, there was a scene where Jade was sitting on the couch of Kyle's apartment and suddenly got pulled into a weird sort of mystical portal. Well, Alan Scott believes that Brainwave Jr. may have had something to do with that, and he and Kyle Rayner go to a sanitarium where Brainwave Jr. is being kept, and confront him about Jade's capture. It's a really great story with some really great art from Paul Pelletier. But I'll be getting that and to Green Lantern number 102 after I play these podcast promos for some podcasts that you should definitely be listening to. So stay tuned to the promos, and once we get back, we'll take a look at Green Lantern number 102. It's Megacon, the largest comic book, anime, gaming, and multimedia event in the southeastern U.S. returns. 
Megacon from March 21st through the 23rd, 2014 at the Orange County Convention Center in Magical Orlando, Florida. Confirmed comic book guests include Frank Bruner, Neil Adams, Bill Sinkevich, Mark Wade, Ron Mars, Greg Land, Michael Golden, Dennis Calero, George Perez, Brandon Peterson, Amanda Connor, Jimmy Palmiotti, Collie Hamner, Carl Story, Renee Winterstater, Billy Tucci, and Brian Polito. Just added Nick Bradshaw, Adam Kubert, Dan Jurgens, Mike Miller, Kevin Eastman, Joshua Ortega, Digger, Bart Sears, Ethan Van Skyver, Mike McCone, Frank Thierry, Mike Mayhew, and Chuck Dixon. Confirmed media guests include stars from AMC's The Walking Dead, Torchwood, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Smallville, Battlestar Galactica, Star Wars, Star Trek, and many, many, many more. Plus I, Scott Gardner, will be there representing the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Tickets are available online now at www.megaconvention.com. Children 10 and under are free with paid adult ticket. That's Megacon 2014 at the Orange County Convention Center, Magical Orlando, Florida, March 21st through the 23rd. For information, contact info at megaconvention.com or visit www. Megaconvention.com. That's Megacon 2014. Be there. Hey, Michael. Hey, Dad. We need to record another new trailer. Another one? Yes. You know that we read comics and then talk about comics because, as we've established, talking about comics you've not read is just dumb. Yeah, and you're making me do it every Thursday. Well, we've moved. Have we? Yes, we have outgrown our old location. I don't feel like I've moved. And we have now moved to twotruefreaks.com. What was that again? Twotruefreaks.com. A-Kids Comics, still every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com. And we are back to take a look at Green Lantern number 102. Well, after we take a look at some of your wonderful folks' emails. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and I want to come out and apologize, first of all, for not reading emails over the past few episodes. Over the last, well, almost month worth of time, I've had a bunch of guest stars on with uh, Thomas DJ and specifically J. David Weiner, And I had a really good time with uh, talking with those guys. But unfortunately, when I do talk with them, it feels kind of self-indulgent to read emails to the show. So I've skipped over a few emails. I've got some piled up, uh, mostly from a certain emailer to the Great White North that I'm going to start reading right now in the first one from Scott Davis. This one from Scott Davis is entitled Sentient Vegetables and Alcoholic Friends, which sounds like an interesting, uh, interesting Saturday night, I guess. He writes in saying, Hi, Sean. How's your winter so far in the Sooner State? We just caught, I just caught up on a few more issues and have some comments below. In uh, Green Lantern number 90, Wow, they killed off Donna's kid? That's brutal. Yes. Yes, it was. I knew Kyle and Donna were going to break up, but I didn't expect it to end this way. The flashback scene of Kyle getting his ring from Canthet was pretty cool, and the tease that Green Lantern was almost an alcoholic wreck named Tyler was a nice touch. Cal seems like a bit of a killjoy in this issue. Hmm. It seems like his buddy Tyler had a hard week at work and was just going to blow off some steam, but Cal really gives him a hard time about pounding back a few drinks. On page 14, with Tyler staring into broken glass and saying, This is me, was awesome. Uh, you know, uh, I'll give you as a nice image. It was basically to show how broken Tyler's life was, and they did it well in that uh, in that image there, but... 
overall, the issue as a whole, being a sort of heavy-handed polemic about alcoholism, just didn't sit with me. But continuing on, uh, Scott states, I wonder if Mars had some experience with alcoholism in the past, so he wanted to try to hit it hard about the negative effects of alcohol on this issue. Never really thought about that, but maybe alcoholism may have been something that Mars may have uh, had some relationship to in his life. Could have been. Tyler learned his lessons by the end of an issue, which is very convenient. And I think you kind of nailed it with that last statement there. Convenient was what this issue was. It was a little one-shot thing that really didn't fit in with the story. And I think the fact that it was resolved so quickly made it a very forgettable issue convenient in the fact that he learned his lesson in just oh a short period of time even though he did almost kill someone by wrecking his car because he was driving drunk yeah didn't really make it that great an issue continuing on he says greenlander 91 this torture kind of issue sort of bummed me out i have no idea what the genesis crossover was and i really don't care to look into it further from here i don't think many people would have I thought that Kyle was being immature when he started whining that Donna should give the relationship more of an effort right after he, he lost her son, or after she lost her son. He also pulls out a sexy picture of Donna in her underwear to look at, which basically implies that he was only in it for the great sex. Mm. Uh, maybe. Uh, I, I, I'd probably have to disagree. I think there was more to the relationship than the fact that Donna had a smoking hot body, but that that does uh, does help it in some ways. I agree that Kyle's new logo for John was absolutely terrible. Oh yeah, the uh, thing for his architecture firm. I thought the one for Radu's coffee was bad. If I were John, I'd say thanks for nothing and let it slide in the garbage when Kyle wasn't looking. Ouch. I love the boom tubes, and I don't know why, but I just love them. It's just because they're just a neat way of transporting people, I think. And this, especially with the onomatopoeia of boom, that, that gives them a nice sort of sound effect feel. Then he says, Green Lantern Quarterly number 3. I enjoyed this issue. The depth, the depth charge story with the sentient vegetables was pretty good, and I agree it was very reminiscent of the Sinestro story in Emerald Dawn 2. Good point that the poor were blamed for all the crime, which I didn't pick up on my first read. Yeah, that was... Oh, who was that? Um, it was Michael Jan Friedman. He was the guy who wrote that one. And he's also a pretty acclaimed science fiction author, so you would think his stories would be... He's done a lot of Star Trek stuff, so his stories would be kind of deep and very sci-fi, so I enjoyed that as well. He goes on. Scott goes on to say, The Alan Scott story about his visit to see Doiby was solid. Yeah, okay. I guess Doiby is still alive, which answers my question from the previous email. I'm not familiar with the death of Dinah Lance at all, so the funeral at the beginning of the story kind of seemed out of place for me. Uh, it deals with Earth 2 and Earth 1, and I would suggest listen to the Tales of the JSA, which, strangely enough, by the time this comes out, should already be back with new episodes, so maybe they'll get a little bit more into the death of Dinalance and the whole Black Canary thing. Uh, Scott continues, the Nort story about the fake robbers was excellent. The villains were hilarious, and it's very interesting that this is the only story written by these two guys. It's so good that it makes me think that they use pseudonyms for the story because there was no way that they haven't written anything else. I never really took that into account. It could have been pseudonyms, but I would tend to believe that Mike's Amazing World knows what he's doing, or Mike Voyles actually knows what he's doing over there, because he's chronicled a lot of the stuff, and the fact that 
none of these characters or none of these authors appear in anything else it means that this was their only one shot for comics or perhaps this is their one shot one shot for writing at all so eh, who knows he continues on the charlie bicker story was great too it's hilarious that acting saved the day i caught your sly remark about alan ball i take it you're not a fan although i thought six feet under was excellent uh you know, I didn't mind Six Feet Under. I thought it was an interesting show, an interesting concept. But, you know, Alan Ball and his weird sort of uh, freakiness. Yeah, I, I think I'll just leave it there. Greenlander Core Quarterly number four. First of all, I noticed the cover is off. It shows the magician battling a dinosaur, but in the first story on page 16, it's actually the magician that creates the dinosaur in order to eat Torquemada's ring construct. The cover should be rated PG-13 for the picture of a girl in her underwear with her legs spread wide open. I think we get a bit more than PG-13 in the book, though. That's just by commentary. I guess it was approved by the Comics Code Authority, so it's all good. The huge recap in the opening pages was completely uncalled for, Scott says. It was really tough to read, and it bummed me out. Oh yeah, that was the one about the, the ancient Malthusians going to wipe out magic. Yeah, that was kind of boring. During the recap, they touched on some of the Green Lantern annuals. Just out of curiosity, are you going to review them on the show? You'll just have to stay tuned and find out. The first story where the magician battles Torquemada is excellent. Wow, the, the page-turned surprise of Giselle and White Underwear was amazing. Yes, it was. That was that was a very, uh, very well-reviewed image in, in my comic. I should stop talking about it. I wouldn't mind reading the story where Giselle kisses the hot female villain who turned into gold in the last page, if you know what I mean. I, I didn't even realize that was there. I'll have to go and look at that again. Mm. The Alan Scott story with Solo and Grundy was excellent, and I liked the recap of Grundy's history. I also enjoyed Bill Jim Ballant's artwork, especially with Jade, as you probably would because Jim Ballant likes boobs. The Nord story about his class reunion was great as well. The last story wasn't very good, though, and you're right, it was very preachy about how a mother should stay and love her kids instead of protecting the universe. The fact that the Guardian tested a GL recruit by threatening the lives of the mother's two daughters by drowning them in a lake covered with ice is brutal. Yeah, I never really thought about that. Yeah, <laughs> letting her kids... I don't know necessarily, necessarily if the Guardian caused the kids to uh, fall into the lake, but yeah, he was there to watch them, and... I guess, yeah, now that I think of I it, mean, he put the uh, ring at the bottom of it. That may have been the uh, Guardian sort of uh, manipulating that. I never really thought about that. Yeah, creepy little hands. Scott continues, The final part of this issue where Hal decides not to warn some of the recruits about their prophesied deaths in the Book of Oa is hilarious. Hal cracks me up sometimes. Hal is that kind of character. Overall, the first four quarterlies have been great so far. I'm glad you picked them and reviewed them. Have a great week, Scott. Well, thanks, Scott. I appreciate that. In fact, I'm going to go ahead, since I haven't read a few emails, I'm going to continue on with another email from Scott Davis, this one entitled Hate Crimes. And it starts out with, of course, hi, Sean. Hello again, Scott. He asked, were you affected by the polar vortex last week? And this was a while back, and I don't think I really was. If you were, please feel free to blame Canada for the weather, because it seems like it, it always seems to originate from us. I just finished reading the hate crime story arc, and it was excellent. I enjoyed all three issues, especially the Green Arrow issues written by Chuck Dixon. I have a few notes. 
And he goes into them, starting with Green Arrow 125. The opening scene was awesome, but it was absolutely brutal with Kotero dreaming of crucifying Oliver Queen. How the heck did Kotero survive the van crashing down the hill without a seatbelt on? Um, it was wizards. Go with that. He just walked away with a simple with a smile on his face while the flan while the flan while a van lay in flames. The ring construct of the two Pegasi that Cal and Connor were riding, riding on was awesome. Y'all all have to admit, I think it was DiMaggio who did the artwork, Rodolfo DiMaggio in there, and he did a really good job with that. I was uh, let's see, when they were at the Statue of Liberty, I was surprised they didn't cut their hand on the railing like our poor friend Paul Christian, aka Purgatory. Well, I guess the uh, Port Authority went and fixed all that after that to make sure no one else cut their hand and lost their ring construct legs falling down the uh, stairs. So there you go. I can't believe that the Good Samaritan was brutally shot by the female cop on the page on page 33. I was surprised that Dixon didn't follow up on this with the ramifications of these actions. This was an awesome issue. Well, I think they kind of dealt with it in the short term with the sort of riot going on that uh, Green Lantern and Green Arrow had to quell that led into the next issue or issue 92 of Green Lantern. So it wasn't directly dealt with, but the violence that uh, rose up from that was kind of dealt with, so there you go. Green Lantern number 92, Scott says, This issue was a bit wordy, but overall it was great. I found it strange that Branlin and Phipps are going to have a quote-unquote debate, but they were essentially saying the same thing. How can they debate? I guess their agenda was to get both the whites and the blacks upset together and rally against immigrants. Eh, uh, possibly. I think it was just a way to... Uh, like the storyline says, sow the seeds of hatred between people by saying politically, racially charged things that would rile up each side. Scott continues, you mentioned that there were discussions that Connor was gay during this time. Can you definitely, you can definitely make a case for that because the way he dresses with the baby blue and pink tracksuit. Oh, eh. maybe Connor just doesn't know where to shop for macho stuff, but eh. I could I could see how people might attribute that to him, but no, definitely not gay. I wouldn't be surprised if he is, nor do I really care. He's not. I'm leaving it at that. Green, Green Arrow number 126. This was an, another great issue by Chuck Dixon. You guys were discussing the mass media and 24-hour news on the show. Speaking of which, have you seen Anchorman 2 yet? Uh, no, and... I hate to say it, I probably won't. I, I never really glommed on to the Ron Burgundy Anchorman thing. I, I'm I'm certain there are funny moments in it. I liked, I remember watching the original and liking Steve Carell in it, but I've just never been a Will Ferrell fan. I'll just come out and say that here. Scott continues on saying, it was a, it was a great satire that covers exactly what you were talking about. It's funny, I never thought I'd hear the term twerking on your show. I'm glad I put that into the lexicon on my show. And I guess I'll never say it. I guess I'll never say never again. This was a great issue and had a nice happy ending because the race riots have ended and, more importantly, Bill and Sandy, the shopkeepers, are friends again. By the way, I think you call the dinosaur ring construct a stegosaurus, but it's actually a triceratops. Oh, I may have, may have gotten that right, but it wouldn't be the first time that I misspoken on this show, so... There you go. I just want to make sure that we did have the dinosaurs locked down on the show. 
I've also noticed that all these Green Lantern issues have covered some pretty heavy topics in such as the Alcoholic Friend, the Race Riots, and now the Lesbian Killer coming up in Green Lantern number 93. Hopefully Mars take a break, takes a break from this soon and gives us a much needed relief with some new cosmic adventures. We'll be getting to that if you're listening right now or if you've listened recently, you'll hear that uh, Cal dealt with sort of cosmic stuff in the uh, issues 98 and 99 where he dealt with the Legion of Superheroes, so I hope you enjoyed those shows. Scott finishes up finally saying it was great to hear Professor Allen on the show too. He was great. Have a nice week, Scott. Well, thank you, Scott. Again, I appreciate you for writing in. Uh, your commentary is always enjoyable, is always thought-provoking, and I can't tell you how much I enjoy reading it on the show. But that's going to do it for emails this time. I've got a couple more. I'll get to those next episode. Keep those letters and cards and I guess the emails, of course, coming into the show at just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. But for now, we're going to close up the email bag and get into the coverage of Green Lantern number 102 starting now. Green Lantern number 102 had a cover date of August 1998 and was released on June 17th of 1998. The cover price was $1.95 US and $2.75 in Canada. Title this time out was Emerald Knights Part 2 Old Friends. The writer was Ron Mars, penciler was Paul Pelletier, anchor Terry Austin, colorist Rob Schwager, letterer Chris Eliopoulos, associate editor Dana Curtin, and editor Kevin Dooley. Sitting at the booth on the closed for the evening Warriors bar, former Green Lanterns John Stewart, Guy Gardner, and Alan Scott await the arrival of current Green Lantern Kyle Rayner so that they can get started on their regular meetup and card game. As if on cue, Kyle arrives and asks the trio if it's okay if he brings along a friend to this private party. A friend who just so happens to be one Hal Jordan. A comedic spit take later, and the former Lanterns ask Kyle what the heck is going on. Kyle relates what happens in the last few issues, with him being flung into the 30th century, meeting with the Legion, being transported back a bit too far in time, and meeting up with a younger Hal, then finally getting transported back to current times with Kyle. Initial shock over with, Alan, John, and Guy introduce themselves to the man who they would all know as a teammate and a friend. But after marveling at how the things were supposed to be turned out in Hal's life, Jordan decides he needs to go figure out a few things. The group wishes Hal good luck, and the time-displaced lantern heads out for parts unknown. Cut to Ferris Aircraft, where a worried Tom Kalamaku monitors a test pilot's handling of an experimental aircraft. The concern is also felt by owner Carol Ferris, who radios the pilot asking just what the heck is going on. The pilot responds that it wasn't him that caused the sonic boom that rattled the airfield, but something that streaked past him. Something that looked like a man. As the experimental plane lands, Tom and Carol walk to the hangar and reminisce on how sighting, a sighting like that was pretty common in the old days when Hal was around. And much to their surprise, those days might be back, as the two are greeted in the hangar by Hal Jordan. Hal gives a polite hello, which is reciprocated by Carol pouncing on him and planting a passionate kiss on his lips. Pleasantly surprised at the show of affection, Hal tells Tom and Carol just what's up with him. Hal says that he doesn't know if he can return to his timeline, and Tom begs him to stay, saying that Earth needs Hal Jordan as Green Lantern. This is made readily apparent, as from out of the darkness, the scion of Darkseid, Kalabak, smashes Hal with his apocalyptian mace. This leads to the books Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011 All Rights Are Served, 
where Hal and Calabac tussle throughout the airfield, with Hal eventually dropping Calabac into a fuel tank and lighting it on fire. After a mighty chwoom, the hero sees a battered and bruised Calabac stumble out of the flames, and as what is becoming pretty typical for a Green Lantern slash Calabac encounter, drag his sorry butt back to Apocalypse via boom tube. Crisis averted, Hal resolves to stay in this time period and make the best of it. The end. As you may have noticed, this was a pretty quick synopsis, because the majority of this story was just simple punchy-punchy run-run. Now, it's nice to see how people are reacting to have Hal being back, and so far, for the most part, it's been pretty positive. The inclusion of Cal back in the book, however, just seems to be a way of throwing another big bad into the mix in order to test Hal's mettle as Green Lantern. And he served his purpose of showing up, getting his ass handed to him, and then limping back to be braided by Darkseid. That pretty much seems to be Calabac's main function in the Green Lantern books. For the past couple of times we've seen him here, he's basically gotten into a fight, a simple one-book fight with uh, the Green Lantern. Formerly, uh, it was with Kyle Rayner, and now it's with Hal Jordan, and soundly getting defeated. I'm thinking that's pretty much all the character of Calabac was around for at this time, so kind of sad, I guess. Going on to my notes into the book, I'll go ahead and start off with the cover, and... It's alright. I'm kind of getting the idea that Terry Austin really isn't the right anchor for Paul Pelletier, and maybe for this book. I went back and looked at stories where Romeo Tangal was inking Paul Pelletier, specifically the Faster Friends storyline where Kyle and uh, Wally West met up for the first time and fought against Hair Metal Sodar, and the artwork there was really amazing with uh, Romeo Tangal's inks behind it. Right here, the line work is really thick, and I think it obscures a lot of Pelletier's details, especially on the facial expressions. We'll get a lot more into that as we go further into the book. As we move into the book on page 2, panel 1, we hit a classic comedic beak, comedic beak, comedic beat, where Guy Gardner does a spit take. And when I saw this, all I could think of was the scene from Mr. Science Theater. Okay, okay, now this next one is the classic Chinese fan, okay? okay? All I do is now I want to take a sip and I want one of you guys to say something surprising to me, okay? okay? Joel, I'm pregnant with your child. Okay, this next one is called Old Faithful right. or okay. Weiler's Geyser of Mirth, okay? <laughs> now what's going to happen? It's guaranteed to get a laugh, just like clockwork, every 20 minutes in a crowded room. Check it out. Okay, uh, uh, you're covered. I got this one. Do it. Hey, there's a ship coming in the rain. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> that was good. That was a dandy. No, no, there is a ship coming in the rain. Just let me get a glass of water before you do it again, okay? Yeah. Oh, oh. oh, there is a ship coming in the rain. Quick, Canva, give me rocket number nine, pronto. Ah! 
What in the heck? We better bring this up on the Hexfield view screen. See? Oh, oh no, no, it's, it's that guy. Sorry about the fender bender. And now, uh, give me that key, fella. What are you talking about? Why are you here? Yeah. Just go Anytime away. I can oh, insert some mystery science theater into the show, I'm more than happy to do that. And that was actually a funny moment. Oh, what what show was that from? Oh, it was Daddy-O. Daddy-O, yeah. Leather coat. Duck. Oh, jeez. That was awful. Okay, moving on to the comic again. On page 3, panel 5, we get the introduction of the Lanterns to Hal. People who intimately knew him, or <laughs> intimately knew Hal, but who this Hal has no knowledge of. So, yeah, this could be a really awkward thing, especially with Hal seeing this painting of all the Lanterns and him in the center. Yeah, it's got to be kind of uncomfortable for you to see what your future is going to be like when you haven't even experienced it. And they do a good job at uh, portraying this in the book. Page 6, panel 3, you get an image of Hal looking at his sort of statue in the sort of glass cocoon in Warrior's Bar, and he remarks to himself that he went gray really quick. And we see Hal looking at himself at the older version of himself with the gray stripes through his hair. And... Shh, don't let anyone know. It was actually Parallax that did that. Not really, it was just crappy Jeff Johns retconning of why that happened. But maybe you should listen to Trentus Magnus' show, and uh, hopefully that'll be out soon. Uh, that'll give you our opinion on uh, the whole hair thing with Hal Jordan. Page 7. Carol Ferris really looks good on this panel. As I've said before in the show, I really like the way Pelletier draws women, and I think this is a good example of it. But again, I think it suffers from I think it suffers from Austin's inks. It's a lot of thickness in the inks. It just sort of diminishes the look of Carol and her facial features. I'm and I hate to say it, it seems like blasphemy in cutting down Terry Austin for being a bad inker, but I don't think he's the right inker for this book. It just doesn't look good to me, and we'll get into more of that in the next book. Page 9, I thought it was a nice little sight gag when Carol and Tom encounter Hal, the young Hal. Carol's car carrying a coffee mug, and she drops it, and Hal stretches out a ring construct hand to catch it before it hits the floor, so I thought that was kind of neat. But it goes into page 10, where Carol, who's surprised to see Hal, just leaps on him. And Hal, of course, drops the mug anyway. So, And again, Pelletier does a great job of drawing the faces and Carol really affectionately kissing him. And the idea of it being very awkward for Hal, because the fact at the time where Hal came from, he and Carol weren't an item. They were friendly, regardless, but they weren't emotionally attached like they are in the current time. So it's got to be kind of, again, very awkward for Hal, and he's handling it quite well. This, this of course, leads us into the fight sequence, which I really don't have much to say about. It's your standard fighty McFightenstein, where the two hero, where the hero and the villain go up against each other, and there's a lot of collateral damage. I do, however, like the fact that Hal is using his brains during this, it's not all punch the guy and use ring constructs to beat him down. What he does is he takes Calabac, drops him into the fuel tanks, and then 
I guess this is kind of awkward. He uses a ring construct match to light the fire of it, or to light the fuel on fire, which I don't know how that would work, but I guess it does. So it's Hal using his brains, which is what he's a lot of time accused of not doing. And I like the fact that Ron Mars is showing a Hal that's not just punching people. He's got an intelligence behind him, even at this era where he's very youthful and kind of inexperienced. So I like the I like what Mars is doing with the character of him. But finally, this brings us to page 21, which is just basically shows what Calabac has been opted to do in the Greenland books. He comes in, poses a threat, normally kind of minor one, tries to beat up the hero, and then Green Lantern smacks him around and he goes limping back to Apocalypse. It's kind of a disappointing story arc for the character of Calabac because I think he could be better used than that. I don't know if this is typically what he's been done with, but all the iterations that I've seen him in, in the Green Lantern book, in the Superman adventures, uh, especially the Superman, uh, the animated series, is he comes, poses a threat, gets his butt kicked, goes home. Is that all Calabac is? That's If so, that's kind of a sad character, but that's about it. Like I said, a good issue. We're getting Hal meeting with more characters that uh, in the current timeline that he had as friends in the past. We're seeing how he's dealing with that. But the but the thing that detracts from the book, I think, is Austin's inks. They're way too thick, and they really obscure a lot of the definition, that I think, that Pelletier puts into these pieces. So we'll get into more of that in the next book. But before we do that, let's go take a look at some of the ads they've got here and see what kind of fun stuff they have to sell for us. Or actually, sell to us. The uh, front inside cover is, oh, well, you could win a grand prize of a Nintendo 64 with Yoshi's Story Game Pack for if you uh, look inside of the packages of Kool-Aid Burst, Kool-Aid Island Twist, or Kool-Aid Mega Mountain Twists. So I guess you could win that. Or a Game Boy Pocket System. I don't think it's the Game Boy Color. It's the more, yeah, it's the more rectangular... Uh, old school non-color Game Boy, non-Game Boy Advance one. So, uh, Nintendo 64. That's a pretty cool prize pack. I, I, I'd, I'd enjoy something like that. A few more pages in, we get talk about a hell of a deal from the comic book legend Todd McFarlane comes the live-action special special effects movie of the event of the year, Spawn, and you get two versions of Spawn. You get the R-rated version for 19.99 or the PG-13 rated version for 14.99. And you can also get an R-rated director's cut, which is available in widescreen. Wow! And surprisingly enough, this is one of the this is one of the first times I've seen this in the advertisement. It says it's also available on DVD. So we're moving away from the idea of VCR cassettes being the main form of movies, and we're moving into the DVD era. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, I. I don't know if this is a landmark thing here, but this, I think, is the first time I've seen DVDs being advertised in comics, so there we go. The next ad is an ad I think we've had before. It's for Burning Rangers. It's a Sega Saturn game where I guess you play a fireman where you put out fires, and it's kind of a weird ad because the fireman is 
all burnt to a crisp, and he's sitting in one of these little kids' sort of inner tube, you know, a blow-up inflatable pools with the little kids sitting outside of it, looking disapprovingly at this smoking, burnt-up fireman sitting in her pool. So I never played the game, don't know anything about it. Sega Saturn was a uh, interesting console, though. The next ad we have is for the movie Small Soldiers, which I think was one of the last films that Phil Hartman is before his untimely demise. And yeah, that was kind of sad. Phil Hartman is one of the great, great voice actors. This also stars, uh, surprisingly, Kirsten Dunst and Jay Moore and was directed by Joe Dante, which works because if I recall, Joe Dante was the person who directed the Gremlin movie. And he works really well with these sort of uh, animatronic puppet type things. And this was a this was a movie I didn't see in the theater, and I think I may have seen it a long time ago. All I remember it had like Tommy Lee Jones as a sort of GI Joe character who had to fight these aliens, and they were all well, basically like GI Joe, the twelve inch GI Joe characters. So there you go, Kirsten Dunst. The next ad is for a Skittles Daytona USA racing game, which you could win if you uh, bought Skittles bite-sized candies. So, yeah, I'm certain this was a high-quality game that you could play on the PlayStation at the time. Uh, along the next page is an advertisement for Superman for All Seasons, written by Jeff Loeb and illustrated by Tim Sale. Again, speaking of Trentus Magnus, I believe he covered this on one of his earlier shows, so if you want to hear what Trentus has to say about Superman for All Seasons, definitely go check that out. After that, we get more promotion for the Small Soldiers movie, where you get, I guess if you... There's a prize pack you could win from AMC and Tiger Direct, including some walkie-talkies, some characters, uh few of the little mini games, the little, like, watch-type games, some, I did say walkie-talkies, and, uh, I guess promoting the movie was what they had to do, and I guess promoting little toys that came from the movie was probably an appropriate thing to do. The next ad's kind of a weird one. It's for Coca-Cola, and it's just a red page with, uh, along the, uh, right-hand side of it going up, the word eradicate, and then in tiny white letters at the top, thirst, and it's in, like I said, it's advertised advertisement for Coca-Cola. So the uh, Coca-Cola company has been borrowing heavily from uh, Davros and the Daleks. So there you go. Then the next ad is a really good one. Uh, it's the Alan Davis and Mark Farmer story, The Nail, which was, in my opinion, one of the better Elseworlds tale. It basically told the story of what would the Justice League be if Superman was not existent. And the whole Elseworld story was Superman landed in a different area and wasn't raised by the Kents, and what would happen if the world had no Superman in it. And I remember picking this up and reading it and thinking it was a really good tale. I think I'll have to go reread it sometime because I, I really enjoyed it. And um, Alan Davis doing the Justice League, it's looks really nice. The back inside cover is a weird, freaky, sort of stylized animation of an alien piloting a rocket ship. And it's an advertisement for JNCO shoes. 
I have no idea. I, I was probably not cool or hip enough to own any of these types of shoes. So, yeah, that's probably why I have no connection to this. The back outside cover, however, is something I have connection to. It's a YooHoo soft drink, or I guess kind of carbonated chocolate drink. And it's an advertisement. If you send in proofs of purchase, you can get T-shirts, hats, Boxer shorts, really? Uh, Swatch watches. Oh, yeah, swatches are always good. A Yoohoo kick sack, which is basically a hacky sack thing, or a Yoohoo bandana. So whenever you're hanging out with the Crips or Bloods, you could wear your Yoohoo bandana. Don't do drugs, kids. Anyhow, that does it for the advertisements for this book. I'm going to go take a quick break, and when I get back after these podcast promos, I will jump right into the second book in the series, well, the second book in the show, Green Lantern Sentinel, Heart of Darkness, number one. This is the Old Father Odin, and you should be listening to Radio Free Asgard. No, no, that's just not going to work. Let's try this again. This is the evil Loki, and if you hate Thor as much as I do, you should be... All right, let's just try one more thing. Jane Foster here, and you should be... Ah, risen! All right, let's just keep this simple. Hello, everybody. My name is Tom Harris, and I do a podcast called Radio Free Asgard, which airs every Thursday over at RadioFreeAsgard.com. We cover the adventures of Thor, Hercules, and more from ancient times all the way up into the present day. We read old comics and make fun of them. I do ridiculous voices and generally make an ass of myself. So if that sounds fun to you, you should come join us, the only Thor podcast hosted by a true descendant of Odin, over at RadioFreeAsgard.com. And we'll see you there. December 7th, Earth 2, 1941, a world very much like our own, yet slightly different, a date which will live in infamy, a world at war, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. The Tales of the Justice Society of America, every Friday at twotruefreaks.libson.com. And we are back. So, let's go ahead, as always, 
start off with our second book and start into our coverage of Green Lantern and Sentinel, Heart of Darkness, number one. This was cover dated March 1998 and released on January 21st, 1998. The cover price was $1.95 US and $2.75 Canada, and the title was Fathers and Sons. The writer was Ron Mars, penciler was Paul Pelletier, inker was Dan Davis, letterer Chris Eliopoulos, colorist Jason Wright, associate editor Dana Curtin, and editor Kevin Dooley. Don't make Alan Scott angry. You wouldn't like him when he's angry. But unlike the other comic book character related to the color green, he isn't going to turn into a giant rage monster. But as Sentinel, he might just rough up another character closely related to the emerald color, Green Lantern Kyle Rayner. And Kyle feels that his anger is rightly justified, as Alan's daughter Jade, who was living in Kyle's apartment, has unexpectedly disappeared. Alan asks Kyle if he called Jade's brother Todd, better known as the ebon hero Obsidian, to let him know about Jenny's vanishing. Kyle says that he didn't, and Alan says that's probably for the best, as Todd tends to be way too overprotective of his sister. Kyle wonders what might be going on, and Alan succinctly states that the only person that could be behind this is Brainwave Jr. Puzzled, Kyle asks just who the heck Brainwave Jr. is, and Alan fills him in on the son of one of the JSA's oldest foes, who decided to take the hero path, joined up with Jenny and Todd in Infinity Inc., and inherited the bulk of his father's mental powers when Brainwave passed on, causing him to go cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Thinking that questioning him at the mental institution that he's kept at as a good starting point, Alan asks Kyle to come along, and after a quick charge at the power battery, the duo are off to Hastings' house. After a quick recap of Alan's history as Green Lantern and his journey to the character of Sentinel, we cut to Hastings' house Sanitarium, a former country estate that Alan has bought up and turned into a mini Arkham Asylum specifically for housing Brainwave Jr., Alan says that all of his overprotectiveness was a backhanded way of trying to make up for not being there for Jenny and Todd in their youth. Cal appreciates the sentiment, as he had very little contact with his father when he was young. But the bonding moment is broken up by the arrival of Dr. Quinn, who looks more like Oprah Winfrey than Jane Seymour, who take the two to meet with the comatose King Jr. With an ominous warning of what happened to the last person who questioned King, Dr. Quinn locks Alan and Kyle into a room with an unresponsive, straight-jacketed Brainwave Jr. Sitting down across from him, Alan begins to tell Henry about the disappearance of Jenny and asks if he had anything to do with it. All he gets in return is a vacant stare and a puddle of drool trickling from the catatonic's mouth. Apologizing to Alan about this fruitless search, Kyle is shocked to see Brainwave Jr. spring back to consciousness, murmuring on the name, Jenny. Alan presses the point, and Brainwave Jr. becomes more agitated, eventually spasming and causing the light bulb and the overhead lamp to burst. Kyle asks Alan if he feels a bit weird, and Alan replies that if Kyle needs to leave, he can. But he's going to keep on until he gets some answers. Kyle says he'd like to leave, but as the room has turned into an M.C. Escher nightmare, he's having some problems finding the door. The duo don the respective hero uniforms in an attempt to find their way out, but they get separated as Kyle flies headlong into a Stargate-like portal. This deposits him in his room at his parents' house, where Kyle meets up with his father. Well, most of his father, as the place where his face is supposed to be is occupied by a missing puzzle piece. 
As the surroundings spin to change into a giant jigsaw, Kyle listens to the disapproving words of his father as he succumbs to the puzzle effect and begins to fall to pieces himself. Meanwhile, Alan hears the frightened cries of his daughter Jenny. Turning, he sees a preteen Jade huddle in a corner, asking why her daddy left her. Alan rushes to her aid, saying that he will never leave her again, but before he can reach her, his body begins to rapidly age, leaving him a feeble, frail old man. Suddenly, Alan springs back to his youthful self at the same time that Kyle reappears from the puzzle pieces. The two wonder how they were freed from Brainwave Jr.'s machinations, and seeing the villain pinned to the wall with an inky ooze, they realize that their savior is one very spurned, very pissed off Todd Rice in his heroic guise of Obsidian. Seeing these two books side by side, I'm pretty much convinced now that Austin is the cause of Pelletier's art looking so poor in the Green Lantern book. Here with Dan Davis, from Guy Gardner Warrior fame no less, the artwork is brilliant. And I hate to keep complaining about Austin on Inks as he's regarded as a classic, and a lot of the stuff that I've seen him do other than in this book has been wonderful. But I would compel anyone to take a look at these books side by side and tell me honestly that Green Lantern number 102 has the better art in it. I just can't imagine how that can be. But aside from the art being really good, the story is great as well. Morris does a great job of writing both the characters, adding a little bit of humor at times, and weaving a tale that not only integrates Golden Age stories, but All-Star Squadron and Infinity Inc. stories as well. I guess generally what I'm saying is, I'm really glad that Tales of the JSA is going to be coming back, and hopefully, by the time this episode comes out, Tales of the JSA will be on a regular release schedule. And by God, I am just so excited to have that show back. It, it's it's almost it would almost be me worth giving up my time slot on the Two True Freaks Network to let them have Friday to release their show so everyone could use Friday as a listing point for Tales of the JSA. That's how much I love that show. But regardless of how much I love that show, I love this comic and I'm ready to go cover it. Let's start, of course, with the cover. Now, obviously, with a three-part story dealing with the characters of Green Lantern, Sentinel, and Alan Scott, and later in the story, Jade, we're going to get three different covers that intersect and become one sort of three-piece cover. A lot along the lines of the storyline we did with The Flash, Green Lantern, and Green Arrow a few months back. Well, about a month back. I'm not saying there's anything great about this. It's a good image, but I think I'll reserve my judgment on the images as a whole when I get to all when I get to reading all the comics. It's a nice image of Kyle 
Uh, he's in a pretty standard pose. The only negative thing I could say about it is it looks like he's got sort of rife, uh, Rob Liefeld-type legs. His right ankle is just really wispy thin. But other than that, the artwork is really good. Alan Scott in the background with the sort of flaming construct thing looks nice. And obviously you're seeing a bit of Alan's cape on the right-hand side of there. So nice image. But I will reserve judgment for which image is the best out of them until I get to all three of the images. Page one on this splash page. Now, I said, you know, Austin had nothing to do with this book, but uh, he could have come in because uh, there is a nice shot of Alan Scott and his teeth. And boy, they're really teethy there. So, yeah, maybe Austin snuck in to just ink in that one panel or that one portion of the panel or just the teeth in general. Austin likes doing that. Moving on to page two, panel one. It's a nice image of Alan here. Both he and Kyle look really good. And uh, like I said, Dan Davis inking Pelletier's pencils is a lot better. But the one thing that Alan has is this ridiculously long 90s cape. I mean, it is spawn level of 90s long. And I guess it would look really cool when he was flying or when he was hovering around, but... Just hear it laying on the floor, it's going to be a nuisance, and it's basically going to be trapping a lot of dust on it. It's going to be a pain in the butt to clean. Plus, I think Edna Mode would probably not approve of it at all. After a little story cap, recap on the previous pages, on page 5, we get uh, Alan watching Kyle recharge his ring and saying that Kyle doesn't have an oath, which was kind of strange for Alan to see because he had an oath. The other Greenlanders did, but Kyle doesn't. And I never really thought about it, but in this sort of way, Kyle is a little bit more like Alan as Greenlander than he is as, you know, Hal Jordan or Guy Gardner or John Stewart or any of the other members of the Greenlander Corps. Like Alan, Kyle is the only Greenlander. He doesn't have the immunity to yellow. And he's kind of young and learning how to do it on his own. So I think in some ways it's kind of neat that they're pairing the character of Alan Scott and Kyle together. Because at the time when they were in the Green Lantern book, there wasn't this grander scheme of them. They weren't part of a giant group. They were just one individual hero. So I like that concept. And I think Bars is doing a good job at uh, about relating to it in the story. Pages 6 and 7, we get a nice little recap of Alan's history, and Pelletier does a good job at drawing a lot of the characters in here. Uh, Jay Garrick and uh, Ted Knight, the Starman, look really great on here. I didn't realize this costume here was the uh, Golden Age Adam. I'm used to him in the more sort of brown suspenders, but this is the one that has the sort of red symbol on his chest with the uh, yellow costume. It looks good. It's a different version of him, but uh, it also tells about you know him what happened to Alan in the uh, Greenland core quarterly books where he de-aged and had to fight Anubis or the Sentinel or Starheart or whatever the heck it was. So I'm glad that I read those. It gives me a little bit of backstory to this story here. Page nine, as the two get to Hastings house, which they realize was a sort of renovated, um, not really plantation house, but sort of a Southern uh, country estate, I guess is what they call it that Alan was able to buy this outright. And I thought, really, Alan Scott? 
do superheroes make that kind of money? But then I realized, no, he was the head of a major broadcasting company. So he probably had a good amount of money. So yes, if he wanted to buy a country house and revitalize it and make it into sort of a sanitarium for this one person who he thought would possibly cause havoc and torment his children, I can understand that. So the fact that he's got money shouldn't be a, a surprise to me. Page 10, as we're introduced to Dr. Quinn, who she comments on, don't say the joke, I've heard it a million times. She has a decidedly Oprah slash Amanda Waller book. She's got that sort of kind of what you would consider in terms to be a, a, a larger, more, I guess the term would be BBW type person. But uh, if you can kind of envision the Amanda Waller pre-New 52 look, that's kind of what she looks with, with a very sort of 70s afro as well. But she also relates to Alan and Kyle, the story of the person who was watching Brainwave Jr. when he had another one of his sort of mental outbreaks. And it was really creepy what happened. It messed him up so badly that he tore his own eyes from his skull and went into a catatonic state himself. So, yeah, that's that's pretty icky when this guy can make you, he can freak you out so much that you would gouge your own eyes out. Ugh, eyeballs. Then on pages 11 and 12, we get our first shots of Brainwave Jr., and it's got a very one flew over the cuckoo's nest type vibe here as we see Brainwave Jr. sitting here in a sitting in a chair in a straight jacket, uh, very catatonic. You can't really he's not really talking, and all he's really doing is sitting there and drooling. It's it's a very powerful image, and it really gives the sort of creepiness of this person just not at all being there and something not being right with him, and it it sets the mood for what's going to be coming up later in the story. Really really well sets the mood. But when Alan mentions Jenny, and then on page 13, we get a reaction from Brainwave Jr., and that's even more creepy, because prior to this, nothing, mention of one word, and he starts saying Jenny's name in this sort of stuttered, slurred, slurred speech, just repeating it over and over again, asking where's Jenny, and becoming more and more agitated, even to the point of on page 13, the final panel where he sort of snaps his neck to one side and rolls his eyes in the back of his head, Pelletier really does an amazing job at sort of getting this, like I, I keep saying creepy, this eerie, disturbing vibe of what's going on with here. And it's just, it draws you into the book. And this escalates even more to page 15 where Brainwave Jr. has freed himself he may not he still may not be in his own right mind but he's twisted and morphed reality around the characters and you get this really beautiful sort of mc escher-esque uh type world where the floor is on the ceiling and there's various staircases and just weird objects and alan and kyle are on different planes it's just really surreal and pelletier's artwork sells it of being very trippy and just messing with the two heroes' heads. I really enjoy it. 
And then continuing on with the sort of trippy feel of this, on page 18, we get this really nice panel of Kyle in this very anguished pose with his hands raised above his head as his body forms into the shape of a puzzle, into puzzle pieces, and those pieces start falling away. And it's a really clever scene because it started out in the previous panel with Kyle encountering his dad, or at least who he thought his dad would be, except the place where his face was, was a missing blank puzzle piece. Everything else was there except for the face. So it's really incredible art and really selling the story and getting across that sort of surreal type vibe that you would associate with a character of Brainwave who can manipulate people's minds. Ron Mars and Paul Pelletier are really, really doing a great job with this story. And it continues on with uh, Alan's dealings with Brainwave Jr. on page 20 as we see him sort of start to start to age prematurely. Well, age in the age basically in his own mind. And as we see him growing old, his hairline receding, you see the symbol of the star heart change back to the old Green Lantern symbol. Plus, you also see sort of cosmetic changes. His boots change from the uh, just simple red boots to the red boots with the yellow bands around them. And he his basically his pants turn to the more traditional pants rather than the sort of spandex ones he was wearing before. So it's really good artwork by Pelletier. And it's really, like I said, this is drawing up the creepy factor in it. It's just just a glorious story. And then finally, we get the ending with Todd coming into the room and the sort of inky, it's sort of inky blotches that are just emanating off of him and around, you know, where he's hit. It just looks so perfect. Uh, Pelletier is just an incredibly underrated artist, and I think here he's just really hitting his stride with these characters. I've seen Todd and a lot of other things. I didn't see much of... I haven't read all that much of Infinity Incorporated where McFarlane was drawing him, but I think this looks a lot better than McFarlane's type stuff, and it might even be aping that kind of feel. But I just think it's a great image of Todd, and as a character, Obsidian never really did it for me, but looking at him on this panel, he looks pretty badass. So I'm excited to see where this is going to be going. I can't wait to reread this, and I can't wait to get to the next issue of this. But we're going to have to wait seven days for that when I get to not only the second part of the Heart of Darkness storyline, but I also get to Green Lantern number 103, where Green Lantern is going to meet up with the then Justice League of America. And we'll see how he deals with the Justice League, especially with Batman, who still seems to have a bit of a thing about uh, Hal Jordan. That's something that will carry on for quite some while. But all that will be occurring in seven days. So thanks, everyone, for downloading and listening. I hope you guys come back in, like I said, seven days. And thanks for listening to Just One of the Guys, a member of the Two True Freaks family of podcasts. See you in seven. Could I say that anymore? Don't think so. Bye, everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. 
This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to know it. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two, and you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook, and now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonsecore contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast. The opening music for today's show was New Found Glory and their song, My Friends Over You, off their album, Sticks and Stones. If you'd like to purchase the song, the one place that I would suggest you go to purchase it is Amazon.com. And the one place I would suggest you'd go to before you go to Amazon.com is TwoTrueFreaks.com. Not only is Two True Freaks home to some of the best podcasts on the internet, it's also home to a link that would direct you to Amazon.com. If you want to buy something from Amazon, go to twotruefreaks.com, click the link in the upper left-hand corner of the website, and you'll be transported directly to Amazon, where you could buy the song, buy Newfound Glory, buy the album, or buy the CD. You could also download a myriad other number of songs. You could also buy movies, electronics, games, whatever your heart would desire, and all for discounted prices. Plus, anytime you use the link at twotruefreaks.com, a small amount of your purchase price goes back to help the website. It won't cost you anything extra, so you'll be getting your favorite music, movies, or entertainment while supporting one of the finest podcast networks out on the internet. So anytime you plan on shopping at Amazon.com, please make sure that you use the link at 2 com.